This week on Below the Radar, we'll be speaking with Bill Tillman, who's campaigning on the no side for the proportional representation referendum uh, in British Columbia. I'm Amjo Hall, and this podcast is produced by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Thank you for joining us uh, this week on Below the Radar. We're here with uh, Bill Thielman, who's campaigning on the no side on the proportional representation referendum in BC. He's been uh, previously a communications director in the BC Premier's office, and he's with uh, Westar Communications. Welcome, Bill. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so uh, last week we spoke with Maria Dorbinskaya from the Broadband Institute, and she outlined sort of the reasons why uh, people should vote yes. And I'm wondering if you can sort of talk about uh, the main reasons you think people should vote no in the upcoming referendum. Sure, I'd be happy to. And I should say that I haven't changed my position. Uh, I'm a proud New Democrat. I worked for Glenn Clark uh, in his premier's office as communication director for a while. Uh, But I've taken the same position for over 15 years. I I led opposition to the single transferable vote proportional representation system in 2005 and in 2009. And I honestly thought that was the end of it because it was a 61% vote to keep first past the post and not go to STV. And I thought that's the end of it. But here we are again. So third time in 13 years. It's kind of amusing uh, to some people. So for us, uh, first past the post is simple, it's stable, it's successful. And we've had first past the post for 145 of our 147 years as a province, uh, minus a a small two-year experiment with uh, a ranked ballot. And it does work very well for us in a number of different ways, and we can can measure that. Uh, By comparison, proportional representation is complicated and confusing. And no matter what people say on the other side, I I ask them, go on the street, talk to people, explain proportional as best you can, or say, what do you think about this, or show them the ballot and the booklet from Elections BC. And the thing that keeps coming back is complicated, confusing, I don't understand it. And so I think that's one of the the biggest issues. We also know from the government's consultation, which was woefully inadequate, but uh, they did two things. They did a public website asking people what were the most important attributes of uh, an electoral system, and they also did polling. And in both of those cases, the first and foremost was simple and easy to understand. And so I think they've missed the boat on that one completely uh, by comparison to first past the post. So we have lots of problems with proportional. We see that it creates uh, political instability, perpetual minority governments. It allows extremists to win election to legislatures all around, uh, particularly in Europe, with as little as 5% or even less in some countries in Europe, uh, but certainly with 5% under the three models proposed. And um, we have all sorts of other issues with the actual referendum itself. There are 29 outstanding questions to be resolved after the referendum, after voters have have voted on yes or no and and potentially picked one of the three proportional representation systems. For example, we do not know, no one listening to this, no one in British Columbia voting knows what their riding boundaries would be before they vote. They don't know how many MLAs would be in that riding undefined could be one, could be two, could be as many as seven under the rural-urban proportional system. So these are fundamental questions when you're changing your democratic institutions. They're not lightly uh, to be just said, oh, well, we can deal with that later, not to worry about it. And I particularly, even though I'm a new Democrat, I particularly worry about any party in power or parties in power making decisions of that fundamental nature that can be in their best interest uh, on their own with a majority. And a legislative committee with a majority NDP Greens will make those decisions afterwards. So, you know, in a nutshell, there's a, a, an absolute uh, raft of problems with proportional representation. By comparison, first past the post, 
Uh, we know how it works. We know the system. We know our boundaries. Uh, we know they can change in a minor way by an independent commission. But all those things are known to us now. And so I think just on the sheer lack of information alone, people who have any question about this should vote no to make sure they don't get something that's a real political Pandora's box. Yeah, in, in um, countries like uh, New Zealand, um, other uh, countries as well that have gone to proportional representation, you don't see a ground well, uh, groundswell of support to go back uh, to a first-past-the-post uh, system. And so I'm wondering if you can speak... Uh, to that a little bit. Certainly. Well, in uh, New Zealand's an excellent example because, it, it, first of all, it's one of the only countries in recent years to switch. Uh, but secondly, and, around, and if we look around the world, we saw in Great Britain they had a, an alternative uh, election pro system proposal, which they turned down. Ontario, Prince Edward Island, British Columbia have all turned down proportional representation models. But when we look at New Zealand, they took multiple years to get to the process of having a referendum and changing their system. They had public hearings, they had uh, a lot of education went on, people had a lot of ability to look at the different models, they made their decision, and then after a few elections, they switched in 1996, after a few elections they went back and asked people, and it was a split vote, it wasn't like 90% said it was great, but, but that's the appropriate way to approach this situation. By comparison, We've had almost zero consultation, not a single public hearing before the legislation was introduced, not a single public hearing after the legislation was introduced and before the vote but took I place. But I would say John Horgan and Andrew Weaver would probably argue that they ran on this in their election platforms, and so they have a mandate to carry it out. Well, the Premier ran on holding a referendum, and that's, and that's as much as was said. But when we look at just the BC example, the uh, Citizens Assembly was formed under the BC Liberals. They held, they picked individuals from a, every riding, uh, ordinary citizens. They came up with a recommendation. And, uh, and then we had the riding maps done by 2009 referendum for sure. Uh, all of those things were done. So what we're doing is, in British Columbia this time, is not giving voters the information they need, not having an educational process, not allowing public input to identify problems that could exist. And it's being pushed through in a rush. And I think that's a mistake. We have, uh, as you know, we have no threshold for participation. Uh, so if 10% of the population votes, uh, that's enough. I'm a strata council president, and according to the BC Strata Act, which is a BC law, when my furnace broke down and I needed $20,000 to repair it, as a strata council president, I had to call a special general meeting, get a quorum of the members, and have a 75% vote in favor in order to spend 20000 bucks on something we absolutely needed. But we can change our entire democratic system with no quorum and a 50% plus one vote. I don't think that's right. Now, uh, the no side's been uh, criticized in the media and from proponents on the yes side for uh, fear-mongering, for some over-the-top uh, advertising mm -hmm. um, in terms of extremist parties entering into the legislature. So I'm wondering if you can uh, respond to that a little bit. Well, I think people have every reason to be afraid when we look at what's going on in Europe. We look in Sweden, a proportional representation country, the Swedish Democrat, Sweden Democrats, a party with clear neo-Nazi links, uh, has got 18% of the vote in the elections in September. We look at Germany, the alternative for Deutschland, again, a party uh, that is extremist, right-wing, anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim, uh, with, again, neo-Nazi issues, uh, has 94 seats. But they only won three of those seats in ridings. Ninety-one of those came from party list, which is part of the mixed member proportional system. <coughs> uh, we look at Austria, where the Austrian Freedom Party, formed by a former Nazi SS officer originally, and with ongoing problems with extremism, anti-immigrant, anti-refugee, uh, they have cabinet positions. They're in charge of defense and interior ministries now and a partner in a coalition government. Um, we can look at other countries, uh, Denmark and Hungary and others. So uh, my father lived through the uh, Nazi occupation of Holland during the Second World War, and he joined the Dutch resistance and, and fought to, to free Holland from 
Nazi occupation. And when I see what's going on in Europe now, it makes me very, uh, very afraid of what's going on. And I think people would be uh, wrong to not think there's a reason to ring an alarm bell and say, hey, maybe not Nazis, literally neo-Nazis, uh, but certainly extremists. I think the idea of an anti-immigrant, anti-refugee, anti-indigenous, anti-SOGI, uh, LGBTQ situation, uh, party, getting 5% vote in BC is entirely possible, unfortunately. Yeah, there's some people who would uh, argue that some of those things exist on the fringes of mm-hmm. our existing mm-hmm. mainstream parties to some degree. And uh, I, I do, uh, uh, I, I said it's some degree on, on uh, I would uh, have some criticism for both the yes and the no side on the question of the threshold. Mm-hmm. They're sort of set at 5% mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. the political scientists do it and other <laughs> countries have it, but there mm-hmm. wasn't really consultation on that. I would have preferred a higher mm-hmm. threshold to deal with, I think, your critique around extreme voices uh, uh, in the legislature that can kind of mobilize and uh, carve out space. But on the other hand, um, it's important to uh, have those spaces also uh, inside um, uh, the legislature as well. So the, the fear-mongering uh, piece, I, I think uh, that uh, part has uh, landed well with some people in terms of of uh, the kind of critique that you have, mm-hmm. uh, but at the same time, setting a threshold at 5% might be too low. Well, I think the threshold issue is an interesting one because in, in the Netherlands, where my father is from, uh, it's under 1%, and so very simple. And the largest, uh, second largest party is the Freedom Party, whose last platform was ban the Koran, close the mosque, throw the Islamic refugees and immigrants out of the country, and by the way, Moroccans are all scum. Uh, that guy has the second largest number of seats in in the Dutch legislature, and uh, that scares me a lot. And and uh, when I see other countries, there's, you know, it's three, four, five percent uh, thresholds. Five percent is uh, you know is not a huge number when you look at the entire province. We've got the same population as New Zealand, and uh, when we look at what happened in New Zealand, which is also mixed member proportional, one of the one of the three options, uh, a party that got seven percent of the vote, the New Zealand First Party, very strong anti-immigrant party, led by a guy, Winston Peters, who's been described as the Donald Trump of New Zealand, which is not (coughs) complimentary. Uh, He became the deputy prime minister. He got 7% of the vote. They didn't win a single riding, a single constituency in the entire country. They haven't won a single riding in a constituency since 1996, but they get nine seats, and that nine seats was the balance of power. So uh, a party with nine seats and 7% of the vote decides who the prime minister is, appoints themselves deputy prime minister, decides changes in policy for the Labour Party, uh, which became the government uh, party. And uh, that is the epitome of the tail wagging the dog. Now, in terms of my own uh, friend uh, networks, when I talk to them about uh, this referendum, I would say people who are 50 years old and over mm-hmm. tend to be against changing the system. They feel like it's a stable system and, and make many of the arguments that you do, but people under the age of 50 seem like they want to have a change to the system because they feel very uh, disassociated from the politics of the day and they feel like it's a way of getting uh, more voices into the legislature that reflect their own political views. Wondering if you can speak to that. Sure. Well, I mean, my glib comment would be, I hope you have lots of old friends and not too many young ones, but but more seriously, when, uh, when we hear about proportional representation, uh, we hear a lot of kind of snake oil type uh, statements about it's going to solve this, it's going to solve that diversity, and youth will be there, etc. But in reality, electoral systems don't change those problems. 
And, you know, <coughs> for example, turnout. If we want to improve turnout dramatically, there may be a slight increase under proportional, and, we, and there's some studies I've seen it goes up a bit when you adopt it and then it goes back down again. Uh, but if you really want turnout, you need mandatory voting. Australia uses that. They have a 94% turnout. There is no voter suppression. Every party knows that every voter effectively is going to vote, whether they're a renter, whether they live in a rural area or an urban area. And 33 other countries also use that, for example. If we want more cooperation, then we should, we could do things like have the legislature decide that the budget can only be passed with a 60% or a 65% vote, which would force whoever the governing party is to reach out to the opposition and negotiate on the budget. Those kind of things could happen, but they're not dependent at all on an electoral system. They're dependent on other rules. So I think that the, some of the claims that are made of, you know, this will empower youth and, and, and First Nations and all sorts of other things, aren't really borne out by the facts, or this is not a, a good solution for that. It's, uh, it's at best mediocre to poor, and uh, there's much better ways to address those problems, but uh, electoral systems aren't it. Um, uh, we're at 312 Main Street right now, where two of the organizations on the Yes side, the Broadband Institute and Dogwood Initiative, are, are based um, out of here. And one of the questions I'd, I'd like to have for you is, let's say that you were on the yes side. <laughs> of the three options that are available, which one do you find the most palatable? Well, it's an interesting question that I'm not going to answer because <laughs> uh, our position is to boycott all three. In fact, we're telling people one and done, vote for first past the post and, and send in your ballot. And let's but, say but, you're forced but, to make but, a decision. Well, well, you're, you're, let's, let's just walk down. But you, it seems to me one you, of the arguments you're mm -hmm. making is around the simplicity of the first-past-the-post system. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I talk to people in places uh, that have MMP, you still vote for your local candidate, you vote for the party, and then But that's there's not even a, decided. But, but, M, that's not even decided. It could be party-only vote. Like, that's one of the many questions <coughs> left unanswered. And what we've said to people is, how could you make a choice? How could you rank these systems when we don't know all the details? We don't know uh, one MLA, two MLA, seven MLAs. The government has not defined the difference the between rural, urban, and semi-urban. All for three of the urban. political party leaders have stated that they prefer uh, open party lists, so that's yeah, one of well, the questions that... Uh, but John Horgan said before the election in a meeting with the Vancouver Sun that he would have two simple questions. First past the post in this referendum, first past the post, and an alternative system fully fleshed out. That didn't happen. Uh, all sorts of things are said in the heat of the moment. I say if you wanted to make sure there was only open lists, then why wasn't it in the legislation for MMP as an option? That would be simple enough to do. So they're just reacting to political uh, winds of the day. Uh, I don't think it's a, a be-all and end-all question, but uh, I mean, to more to your original uh, point, two of the three systems have never been tried anywhere in the world. I mean, that, that's just absurd. And to say it's a made-in-BC solution doesn't cut it with me. Most countries in the world that use proportional representation use party list, which isn't on the ballot. And it's not on the ballot probably for some good reasons, uh, because it doesn't really involve having ridings. But there's no way that I can make a decision, a rational decision, uh, with the knowledge that I have with three systems with not enough detail. So unfortunately, I can't answer your question. People on the uh, yes side um, uh, argue that those who are on the no side benefit from the existing system that we have. Either they work as lobbyists or their existing politicians functioning uh, within a framework and so this is like a kind of old guard argument so I'm wondering if you can uh, respond to that well yeah I mean I, I hear some of that and uh, just to be clear yet for the I know you know this and but for the umpteenth time I'm not being 
paid to do this. This is totally volunteer for the third time in 13 years. I'm not lobbying for anyone on this. Some of my clients agree with me. Some of them disagree with me very strongly. And it doesn't, you know, doesn't help my business. But if we had proportional and if there was a multiplicity of parties, a kind of a pizza parliament situation, uh, it would make more work for lobbyists. There'd be more parties to deal with. You'd need more staff to go out there because everything would be up in the air for a, a vote. And we've seen that in, in many different countries with proportional. Uh, we've seen in Italy, uh, and my opponents don't like it when I raise Italy, but 65 governments in 70 years under proportional representation. And so you've got these changing coalitions. So I can say quite clearly for the lobbying business, uh, government relations, it would be a huge expansion of business because no one could, could deal with that. And, and the idea that, oh, it's simpler under first past the post, I don't care if it's simple or not. I, I'm just working for a living like everybody else. Yeah. And so the more work there is, the better. As for the old guard part, um, I think that people who have a good look at the system and think about it um, don't believe this should be changed. But that said, there are people on both sides who want either who are have been around for a long time. Uh, you know, John Horgan, for example, the premier. Uh, Glenn Clark uh, is on our side as is Ujjal Dosanjh, former NDP premier. So there's there's no absolute line to be drawn between one group and another group. I regret that the gov this government uh, has politicized this issue because the Liberals, to their credit, in 2005 and 2009 did not, and the NDP did not either. They all stayed out of it. Let let voters decide as it should be. Instead, we've got politicians politicizing this. We've got a leaders' debate uh, that's happening as well, and that's just only further politicizing the issue where it really should be up to voters and advocacy groups, in my opinion. It, it seems like each side is sort of um, cherry-picking um, examples that work or don't work uh, for a PR. Shocking, so, shocking. Uh, <laughs> uh, yes, you know, Germany is doing well economically, New Zealand is doing fine, and then the no side brings up the, these others. But would you not agree that there are some examples where you have quite stable PR governments in place that have been functioning for decades. Oh, there's no question that per, perpe, uh, perpetual, my, <laughs> perpetual, <laughs> represent, perpetual representation, uh, that proportional representation and, per, and perpetual minority governments, uh, that they have, uh, I mean, you know, it's, it's not like uh, on one side is, is uh, heaven and the other side is hell. Obviously, these countries do. But look at Germany, for example. I mean, yes, they have a very strong economy, but um, we've just seen Angela Merkel resign or say she will resign as chancellor because of uh, increasing pressure from the alternative for Deutschland and anti-immigrant sentiment and, and attacks on the Christian Democratic Party uh, that she leads. Uh, we've seen that situation developing where they couldn't form a government for an extended period of time as well. Uh, I think we we've see had that, lots of... We've had that internally but, yeah, within parties but, from Stockwell Day to whomever, <coughs> internal revolts within parties. Well, so it's, that's it's the nature so much, of But politics, it's not so much no? an internal revolt. I think it's external in this case. But, um, you know, and we've seen, uh, you know, by comparison... Uh, in British Columbia. This is the first minority government we've seen in 65 years. It's very unusual circumstance here. So I think that the, uh, you know, the reality is, and, you know, uh, I mean, I read stuff on social media from, from advocates for proportional saying, oh, you know, we have the best countries in the world. I mean, there's a whole bunch of factors involved in all this stuff. And I, I would defy anyone to say that you couldn't find, and you do find lists with Canada, the UK, uh, and, uh, and America on those lists as well in different, it's just different factors. I don't think that's the be-all and end-all of it. I think, really, the question people should ask is, is, is a good political system, does it give me, uh, in our view, give you local accountable representation uh, with an MLA in your community in a defined area, which you know, uh, where you can change MLAs if you wish, if they don't do a good job, and you can change the government if necessary, um, which we've seen here in this province a number of times. Now, you mentioned that you have uh, support of uh, former pre premiers like uh, Glenn Clark, 
uh, and Ujjal Dassange. But I'm wondering if you can speak to, as we uh, draw to a close on this uh, campaign uh, fairly soon, what's been your strategy in terms of uh, getting to the, the end game of this referendum? How are you doing outreach with different mm -hmm. communities and uh, how's that that's going? Yeah. Well, it's been very challenging, first of all, because we had uh, basically from Labor Day through to October 20th, we had a municipal election campaigns. And it was very hard for us to get a word in edgewise about the this referendum, even though it's extremely important and and it could change the way we uh, elect our democratic representatives for decades to come, um, and then we had marijuana legalization on October seventeenth. So, so uh, you know, we to start with, we had to ring the alarm bell, and so we did, as you said earlier, hard hitting TV ads, and um, you know, we'll go back to some more television advertising towards the end, the last period when people can still vote. But we've been also quite active in both the South Asian and the uh, Chinese Canadian communities. We have uh, outreach committees working there very hard uh, w within both communities to, to contact people, to let people know this is going on. And there's a real challenge. I mean, as I said earlier in this interview, you know, no public hearings, no publicly sponsored debates. I mean, I'm doing uh, things like your show and lots of media and some organizations are doing it. But uh, by comparison in the HST, we had the universities held public... Uh, open, free uh, debates from both sides uh, so people could think about the HST issue, and, and they were all over the province. Nothing like that is happening this time, and I think there's a real paucity of a, a democratic engagement. Yeah, anything you'd like to add? No, I think that when people look at the ballot, those who haven't voted yet, I, I think they should think about what is the most important values for them, and if you want something that's simple, that's stable, that's been successful, uh, where you have an accountable local representative, you can change them, uh, you can, uh, we've, we, this is a system which has allowed, uh, we had the first uh, First Nations person elected in 1949, Frank Calder, we had the first Indo-Canadian cabinet minister, Mo Sahota, the first Indo-Canadian uh, premier, and Ujil Dosanj, we have uh, Filipino-Canadian, uh, Chinese-Canadians elected for long periods of time, uh, and we've had many different parties that have, have grown up to meet the needs of the community. So I think it, it uh, no system is perfect, but it is a good system, we understand it, and the alternative is uh, a leap into the unknown. So last night we just had the U.S. midterm election. Mm -hmm. So I just thought, since we have you here, sure. you got a, a quick hot take on your <laughs> analysis of what happened last night. Well, the Democrats blew it again is sort of the short version. I mean, I'm glad they took control of the House of Representatives, and that will provide some balance to the Republicans and to Donald Trump. But uh, losing seats in the Senate... I, and I think it's unfortunate because those who say, well, you know, there must be some giant, you know, negative reaction to the craziness of Donald Trump, the answer is no, it, there isn't. And uh, that many Americans are quite content with that kind of uh, leadership from a guy who is, uh, you know, very erratic and, and very right wing. Um, but it, you know, when you look at the numbers uh, in riding our district after district, congressional and, and state senate, um, the Republicans did quite well. And so I think that the American public is in a very split frame of mind at best. And, and what we Canadians, I think if the election was in Canada, I know the results, <laughs> there would be very few Republicans left. Yeah. But um, they're in a different, uh, different space and time. And despite all of the regressive and reactionary things that Donald Trump has done, he still has strong support among the American people, unfortunately. Uh, thank you f uh, so much for uh, joining us, uh, Bill. I, as I said before, I voted on the yes side for MMP, but I didn't put it in the mailbox yet. But you've There's been still doing time. a great There's job still on time. the yes side. <laughs> you won't convince me, but you might convince some people. So, Thank you for listening to our conversation with Bill Tillman on the no side of the proportional referendum in British Columbia. 
And uh, thank you to the producers of Below the Radar, Jamie Lee Gonzalez, Melissa Roach, and Maria Cecilia Saba. Hope you tune in next week for future episodes. Mm-hmm.